have you ever found yourself in a situation where you thought at first what you were about to do was a fantastic and even brilliant idea, only to moments later absolutely regret everything you just did? Okay, so for me, it was the summer of 2007. Some of you uh, maybe weren't alive at the time. Many of you like me were, so I'm getting old. Um, the iPhone was just invented, okay? Um, Transformers was in the theaters, and people were still listening to Akon. I mean, what a time to be alive. And uh, my friends and me at the time were absolutely dead set on spending as much time in the summer in the sun. Uh, it was one of those perfect summer days as a kid. Uh, the, the sun is out. It was warm. We had no responsibilities, maybe than just being home at 9 p.m. And uh, we had spent the entire morning skateboarding downtown by the ocean. And uh, by the time it was noon, we were sweaty. It was hot. And uh, we just needed to, like, cool down. And I decided the best way to cool down was to jump off the harbor into the ocean. Okay, so many of you know where this is going. Uh, at the end of the harbor, there was a bridge. Okay, and I thought that is a great place to jump into the water. And so I climbed up onto the railing and I jumped and I jumped and I sailed through the, the, the air. And I thought this is going to be amazing. And I crashed into the water. I fully submerged. And when I serviced, I yelled to my friends. And as I did, my friends came running to the railing and they too jumped into the water. We spent hours swimming and jumping into the harbor. And eventually we went to my friend's place to dry off. He lived nearby. And so we showed up to his place soaking wet. His mom took one look at us and told us that where we were jumping off in the harbor was the place the city emptied the sewage. We were totally disgusted. I thought there was one thought that ran through my mind, and it was I got so much water in my mouth. We were totally, totally disgusted. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure how accurate my friend's mom was. She probably was just trying to scare us away from jumping off of the harbor. But we were disgusted because we realized the source of the water wasn't what we first imagined. In James chapter 3, James gives us a, a description of a type of living. He calls it wisdom from below. And he says that it comes from an unexpected source. Like my friend swimming in this water, it looked great. But once you understand where it comes from, you will have second thoughts. So take a look at what it says in James 3.13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Okay, so James here is contrasting two types of wisdom, two kinds of wisdom, one from above and one from below. The, the question for us this morning is where does your wisdom come from? Or what is the source of your wisdom? You see, the kind of wisdom that James is talking about is a wisdom from below. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. In other words, the only way to know that you are truly wise is by looking at your life. 
right? If you're truly wise, you'll be able to look at your life and tell that you truly are wise. See, James is saying that you can't just say that you're wise and live like a fool. It doesn't work that way, okay? So when I was in high school, I wanted to get in shape so that I can make it onto the rugby team. And uh, I know that that's like a terrible idea. Just look at me like I, I never had an athletic build and some things just never change. Okay, so I could have hit the gym. I could have eaten more protein. I could have lifted more weights. I could have, you know, been more disciplined, done all of the right things. But where's the fun in all of that, right? That just sounds like a lot of hard work. And so I did the easier thing and I went to a store in the mall called GNC. You've probably been there, okay? Uh, and I walk into this place and the guy at GNC looked like he'd never seen a dumbbell in his life, okay? Middle-aged, bit of a gut, absolutely no frame, no offense to this guy. Um, but this guy had every magical powder pill and potion that you could imagine, right? And each one of them promised to deliver absolutely shredded results in under eight weeks, okay? So this guy knew all the stuff. He had all of the information, but it clearly wasn't working for him. And I wasn't about to blow $200 on something that wasn't even working for him. But somehow I wasn't able to make it out of there without blowing a bunch of cash, okay? Uh, he got me with his incredible sales pitch, right? Like all of the descriptive words and, you know, uh, formulas on the back just got me. And, and, and just in case you're wondering, it didn't work, okay? If his information was truly wise, you'd be able to tell it by his life. That's James' point. If, if there's somebody wise and understanding among you, let's see it by your life. Let's see it by, by your life that, that produces works done in humility. It's like trying to get um, financial advice maybe from somebody who's broke. Like it's just, it's just a bad idea, right? Um, James says when somebody is truly wise, you can tell it by their good life. James also says that true wisdom will result in, quote, deeds done in humility, the word here for humility can also mean meek or gentle. In fact, it is the exact same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. See, what is James getting at? How, does, how exactly does being meek or gentle cause you to be wise or live a good life? Look at how he describes this false wisdom from below. He says in verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And, and many of us in, this, in the room are like, come on, James, seriously, demonic, right? Like this is extreme. This seems like intense language, demonic, really? Like growing up, it was Harry Potter, heavy metal, you know, uh, like scary movies. These things were demonic, right? And it was like the, the satanic panic of the early 2000s where you're just like hiding your kids from everything. Like everything had like a demon hiding behind it. And uh, for some reason, Gandalf was like totally chill. Like he was, a, he was the good wizard. But Harry Potter was like a spawn of Satan somehow. And like watching a movie of like a little boy who went to wizard school would somehow open up a portal and like, you know, possess your kids or something like that. This was the, the air we breathed, and um, my parents made me like burn my Pokemon cards because they were somehow demonic too. I think our views of the demonic come more from Hollywood than they do of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament, right? Like many of the things that we think about the demonic and how the demonic works is more superstition and, and, and Hollywood drama. But James says the demonic looks quite different. He says that it looks like bitter envy and selfish ambition. See, the word translated here as bitter envy is the Greek word 
zealous. It's where we get our English word zealous. This word conveys the idea of being filled with passion or even anger for something that you care deeply about. It can describe somebody who's militant in their religious way, or they are even fanatical. This was also the name of a growing political movement in the first century. As James is penning this letter to this church, there is a political movement in Israel known as the Zealots. See, the Zealots were fed up with the moral corruption of the Roman Empire. The Romans made it hard for the Jewish people to worship their God. They forced the, the people to even bow the knee to Caesar and hail him as a God. On their coins read uh, Caesar, son of the gods. See, they were required to show loyalty to Rome over showing loyalty to Yahweh. This would be like having to bow the knee and worship the prime minister and, and, and having to decide, am I going to worship him or am I going to worship the God of the Bible? See, the Jewish people wanted to drive out the Romans from the land of Israel and liberate the people that have held them in bondage and captivity. They wanted to, quote, take back their nation for God. See, they were inspired by a man named Judas Maccabee. You can read about him in all of the, the Maccabean letters. Um, and, and Judas Maccabee, his nickname is Judas the Hammer, okay? If that sounds like a WWE wrestling name, that's because it pretty much is, okay? Um, Judas Maccabee came in and he, and he threw down on the Greeks and, and he came to expel the pagan ways of the Greeks from the land of Israel. Uh, he wanted to, to free his people from the pagan ways and from their, their pagan worship. And um, the thing is, they won. They won their war for truth, a, a war for religious freedom, and their war in the name of God. They overthrew the, their enemies and drove out their pagan ways. But by the time that Jesus finally came on the scene, Israel was once again occupied. But this time it wasn't the Greeks. This time it wasn't Egypt. This time it was the Romans. See, the victory that Judas Maccabee gave to the people of Israel was very short-lived. And at the time that Jesus came on the scene, they were waiting for the Messiah to finally arrive and liberate them from the oppressor. They were waiting for, for a Messiah who would come and be like Judas the hammer and would throw down on the Romans and liberate them from captivity. They wanted the Messiah to, to take back their nation for God. But listen to me, Jesus didn't do that. If Jesus wanted to, he could have overthrown Caesar rather than becoming a, a crucified martyr at the hands of the Roman Empire. But he didn't. It's as if he was living by a different kind of wisdom, a wisdom not from this world. See, if anyone had the right to take back the nation of Israel for God, it was Jesus, and he didn't. In fact, Jesus says this, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting but my kingdom is from another place. See, James is writing to a group of people in this church who have become militant and hostile in their approach to following Jesus. In their fight for the truth, they have failed to become what he calls peacemakers. He uses this term twice. They have made enemies of those Jesus came to save. James can't think of a more devastating reality than that. They have made enemies of those Jesus has come to save. They have become hateful and arrogant toward those that Jesus sent them to rescue. They have, and they feel justified in this. 
because they're on God's side. They're fighting for truth. They're, they're taking back their nation for God, and they feel like they're doing God a favor, or so they thought. But James exposes it for what it truly is. He calls this wisdom earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And the people that James is writing to think that they're, they're doing good. They think they're doing right. But James seems to, to say that they are opposed to the way of Jesus. He goes so far to say that what they're actually doing is demonic. Their way of thinking is fueled by a different kind of wisdom than the kind that comes from God. And, and it's what Paul calls the appearance of wisdom. See, what their actions reveal is they don't understand the heart of God. They don't understand the heart of the Father. See, what if Jesus laid down his life instead of taking back Israel for God because he knew that political power isn't what would change the world? What if the real enemy for Jesus wasn't Caesar? What if it was actually something far more dark and sinister? See, what's interesting is the word that, G that James uses for selfish ambition is a word that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. The only person who uses it prior to here when James pens this word is Aristotle. And Aristotle used this word to describe somebody who's seeking to gain political power. One lexicon defines this word as, an, um, as quote, self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. See, James is confronting a group of people who are trying to take and gain political power in Jesus' name. They're trying to take back their country for God. They're fighting for the truth, but the way they're doing it is unloving and harsh. See, it's if James believes that true and meaningful change doesn't come about through gaining political power. Instead, the only way to change the world is by enemy love and overcoming evil with good. But listen to me, that doesn't sell today. That, that, that is not going to make the top list of movies in our time and day, right? Like, like, who's going to watch a movie where the hero dies for the villain and loves his enemies? We, that's not what we want. We want vengeance. We want bloodshed. We want action. We want John Wick and Clint Eastwood, not Jesus of Nazareth. But James says that this kind of thinking is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, James has already gone so far as to... to um, be harsh and say that their faith is no better than demons, that their tongues are lit on fire by hell, and now he is so bold as to say that their wisdom comes from demons and not from God. And I'm like, wow, somebody has definitely woken up on the wrong side of the bed. Like, James, have a cup of coffee before you pen another word, right? Like, why does he use such harsh, harsh language? Why is, why is he, his words filled with such dark descriptors? I wonder if it's because this looks so spiritual. It looks so good and honest. It appears to be genuine and godly. It looks like what they're fighting for is right. But James wants to let them know that the root of it is demonic. I think what James is getting at is that we need to understand who our true enemy is. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, and he says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, our enemy isn't the person that we disagree with. It's not the people on the other side of the issue, and it isn't, it isn't the people who fail to live like Jesus. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. And listen to me, if our enemy is flesh and blood, we have a real and serious problem. 
James says in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Okay, so a few weeks ago, uh, Laurel and I made a pit stop in Las Vegas. Okay, we were on the, our way to Arizona. We missed our flight. Don't worry, we didn't do anything crazy, okay? Mainly because we didn't have time. Um, and uh, we had just enough time to gas up and hit the road, okay? We had a five-hour drive to Arizona, and um, I convinced everyone to stop for coffee. There's a place called Luminous Coffee. I was like, guys, we've got to stop here, okay? And they were okay with it. And so the guy who was driving was my friend Dave, okay? Dave's a really smart dude, okay? So I just, like, assume... Whatever Dave's doing, he's got it under control. He's a smart guy. He can get us there. So Dave puts Luminous in the Google Maps. He starts driving. And I'm like, wow, this is taking a really long time. We went all the way to the other side of Las Vegas. And uh, it was it was like cool because it was like beautiful. But as soon as I started seeing desert, I got concerned, okay? And I was like, David, do you like? are you sure you know where we're going? And he's like, don't worry. It's right up here to the right. You should have seen the look on his face when we pulled up to Luminous Apartments, not Luminous Coffee, okay? He was like, oh my gosh, we had been driving for 40 minutes in the wrong direction. We eventually made it, but we went the wrong direction. James says that earthly wisdom will derail your life and take you down the wrong road. You'll spend your whole life hating those that you were supposed to love and to reach. You'll think that you're doing the right thing, that you're going the right way, but it leads to disorder. See, Christians are notorious for this. Just look at how many Christians were offended that an American beer company used sexual sin to sell beer. Listen to me. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Selling beer by using sexual sin is more American than apple pie and NASCAR, right? Like, like we are so surprised and, and offended by this. But listen to me. Judging the world for not living like Jesus is crazy enough. But demonizing them, spreading hate on social media, and wondering why they don't want anything to do with Jesus shouldn't shock us. It's not rocket science. This is earthly wisdom, and it's opposed to the way of Jesus, opposed to enemy love, and is opposed to what really matters. See, I believe that no one is going to stand before Jesus and give an account for their life and say, I wish I won more arguments. I wish I caused more division. I wish I ranted more to my friends on social media. See, we live like this, and we buy into the wisdom of the world and in the end, the only thing we will do when we see Jesus face to face is say, I wish I would have loved my enemies. I wish I would have been more sacrificial the way you were, Jesus. I wish I would have talked more about you than my political opinions. I wish I would have shown the world what it truly looks like to love my enemies. We are going to stand before Jesus. And I do not think we are going to regret the fact that we laid down our opinions and our thoughts to love the world like Jesus did. We should care about truth and holiness. I am for that. I understand the desire to fight for truth. I am for truth. I am for holiness. But bashing the world for not living like Jesus does not help. James calls this unspiritual, earthly, and even demonic. See, James writes in verse 17 that the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. He calls it full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Look at the word he uses, peacemakers. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, that's what should mark the life of a follower of Jesus. Are you pure? Are you peace-loving? Are you considerate? Are you known by others as one who is a peacemaker? 
Is this how people would describe your life? Is this how people would describe your actions and your demeanor to the world? See, James here brings to mind Jesus' blessing in the Beatitude. He uses three words from the Beatitudes, the meek, the pure, and the peacemakers. This is Jesus' blessing to those people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. See, true wisdom that comes down from heaven is about making peace. It's about showing love towards those you disagree with. The people James is writing to are trying to overthrow the pagan society. They are fed up with the sinful practices, the imperial cult, and the pagan society, so they are set on taking back their country for God. And this is what we do today. We divide, we tear down, we criticize, we attack those we disagree with, and we think we're doing God a favor. How have we gotten so far away from Jesus of Nazareth? How have we constructed a religion that looks nothing like Jesus of Nazareth? We have become militant, zealous, and divided. And James says, this is not wisdom. See, wisdom, according to Jesus, is to, quote, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus taught us that the real cultural war isn't out there. It's in the human heart. Lust, greed power. These are the things that truly wreak havoc on our world and destroy us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. See, Tim Keller says this, how did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. He changed the world by making peace and dying for his enemies. This is what Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, somebody may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what God did. He died for his enemies. That's me. That's you. He died for us. While we were still opposed, while we were still against him, while we were still rebelling against him, he died for us. This is how God shows his love toward us. And he invites us to do the same, to lay down our lives for our enemies, to lay down the need to be right all the time, to lay down our fight for the truth and to realize that the real fight is love, to love the sinner, to love the broken, to love those on the outside, and even to love your enemy. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your father in heaven. So what is wrong with this false wisdom that, that, G, that James is addressing? Why does he call it un, unspiritual, earthly, and demonic? Like what's so wrong with standing up for your rights and fighting for religious freedom and taking back your nation for God? What is so wrong with defending the truth? According to James, at its core, this kind of wisdom fails to understand the heart of the Father. It goes back to what James said last week when he said, how can you worship God with the same mouth that you curse those made in God's image? How can we with the same mouth sing praises to God and then also criticize and speak ill of those that Jesus loves and came to save? Will Williman writes that the basics, the basis of ethics of Jesus is not what works, but rather the way that God is. 
cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not. But it is advocated because this is the way that God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. We seek reconciliation with the neighbor, not because we feel so much better afterward, but because reconciliation is what God is doing in the world through Christ. See, God is on a mission to overcome evil with good. God is on a mission to renew all things through redemptive love. And God has come to lay down his life to save his enemies. The question for you this morning is, will you join him? Will you lay down your sword, your rights, and your opinion, and love those Jesus came to save? Will we follow Jesus in his way of love? Let's pray.